One of my favorite movies, it's probably been out for 20, 25 years. I don't know. I've hit that age where I say that movie I used to like, it came out a couple years ago, and it was like in the 1990s, because um, so, I'm only 25. And, uh, but I really like the movie The Green Mile. And if you've seen the movie The Green Mile, it's set primarily on death row in a prison back in the 40s, 50s, 60s. And Tom Hanks is kind of the warden of death row. And Michael Duncan Clark is the prisoner that comes in. He's actually innocent. And in this movie, they, re they reference this space that you walk between your jail cell and the electric chair as the green mile. And there's a scene early in the movie when Michael Duncan Clark's being taken to the prison. And there's this prison guard, his name is Percy, and he's kind of a horrible, horrible person. And spoiler alert, he gets what's coming to him in the end. But in this movie, they get him out of the, the paddy wagon. They're leading him into the prison, and you can hear this little snot-nosed kid, Percy, yelling across the yard, dead man walking, dead man walking here, dead man walking. And you see all the other prison guards roll their eyes, and like, what is he doing? And, and he says this as he's going into the prison because he knows that this man is going to die. And, and you learn throughout the movie that they reference this green mile, this, this space between where you live and where you're going to die. And you'll hear people in the movie as they walk along it, they'll say, walk in the green mile, walk in the green mile. And I've always watched this movie and it never really dawned on me until recently, like I can't imagine how things change in a familiar setting when you know you're going to die. That, that the reality is the people in this movie, they walk the hallway in that jail cell in this quadrant of the prison multiple times. They've walked past other cells. They've walked this supposed green mile millions of times, but there comes a point in their life where they walk it for the last time, and how everything around that once was familiar must take on a completely different meaning when you know the destination at the end of the mile is you're going to die. Uh, this sermon series that we're going to look at through Easter is the, is, is the last scenes of Jesus' life here on earth. It, it's, we're going to look at the places that Jesus walked and the situations that he walked through and the people that he walked with. And, and I've read these stories of Jesus' last week of his life a million times, and I would bet so have many of you. But it really hit me this year, for whatever reason, this idea that Jesus is walking among familiar places with a lot of familiar people, but this time he's walking it knowing that death is just around the corner. He's knowing that these last few miles of his life are really the last few miles of his life on earth. And so for this sermon series, we're going to walk what I am calling the red mile with Jesus the last mile of his life before he goes to die. And this morning we're going to be in Luke 22, and we're going to start in verse 39 here in just a moment. But as Jesus begins this journey, as he begins to walk towards the cross, we need to remind ourselves of what happens right before this. What happens right before Jesus gets to the beginning of his red mile? And what has just happened is Jesus has been in the upper room. He's been celebrating the Passover with his disciples, with his best friends, with his closest followers. Jesus has just got done saying that this is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
Jesus has just told his followers that one of them is going to betray them, and for some reason they can't figure out who it is yet. Jesus has just got done telling them that he's going to die. And then Jesus takes three of his closest followers, Peter, James, and John, and he goes to a place that we call the Garden of Gethsemane or the Mount of Olives. And starting in verse 39, it says, Jesus came out and he went, as was his custom, it's a familiar place, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when Jesus came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And Jesus withdrew from them about a stone's throw away. So in other words, he's out of earshot, but not out of eyeshot. And he knelt down and he prayed, and he said this, he said, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And Luke gives us kind of the shortened version of this story. If you read all of the Gospels together, Jesus actually prays this three separate times. Three times he asks God to take this cup from him. Three times Jesus says, but not what I want, but what you want. Verse 43, there appeared to him an angel from heaven who strengthened him. And being in agony, Jesus prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to his disciples and he found them sleeping for sorrow. Now again, we get the shortened version. The gospel writers tell us that this happened three times too. Three times Jesus went to his disciples and said, why are you sleeping? And then he went back to pray. And then he came back again and found them sleeping. And then he went back to pray three different times. And Jesus said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And as Jesus begins this red mile journey, we see that Jesus is legitimately wrestling with what to do. Jesus is legitimately struggling with the idea of where this journey will take him. Jesus is genuinely in agony. He is genuinely wrestling with God about maybe there is another way. Jesus is genuinely distraught. He's genuinely troubled. Jesus is coming to the Father three separate times and saying, God, if you could find another way, that would be great. Jesus is wrestling with what to do. And what that tells you and me this morning as we begin this journey is it tells us the weight of what Jesus is about to carry. The depth to which Jesus wrestles with this in this story tells you and me that the weight he is about to carry is bigger than we can imagine. The Old Testament is, is pretty clear. There's a bazillion references in the Old Testament to this idea of the cup. And this cup that Jesus is asking God to take from him, it's pretty clear through Old Testament teaching that he's asking him to take the cup of God's wrath. That this cup that Jesus is describing that is about to be poured out on him is the wrath of God against the sin of the world. Uh, one example is found in Isaiah where the prophet tells Jerusalem to wake up. He says, you have drunk from the hand of the Lord. You have drunk from the cup of God's wrath. You have drunk from the dregs of a bowl, the cup of staggering. And there's, there's a numerous references in the Old Testament to this idea that God has a cup of wrath that has to be poured out on the sins of mankind. And, and Jesus understands this. And Jesus is asking God to pour his wrath on something else if it's possible. 
Jesus understands that a holy God cannot tolerate sin. And that sin of the world has to be punished. And Jesus is understanding in this moment that the end of his journey is not just death on the cross, but it's the wrath of God poured out on the Son of Man. And Jesus was stressing and anguishing so much in this moment that the writer says he sweat drops of blood. And, and it says like drops of blood. And that certainly could mean that it's just kind of a metaphor that he was stressing so hard that it, the drops looked like blood. Or it could be just an illustration that the writer is using. But just so you know, there is an actual medical condition where that happens. I'm going I'm to butcher this name, but it's called hematidrosis. And it's, it's documented throughout history that where you become so anxious and your physical strain of stress is so great that the capillary blood vessels in your face and in your body will dilate and they will burst and it looks like you're mixing sweat and blood and it's dropping to the ground. Now either way you slice it, the idea here is to be reminded that as we begin this journey, Jesus is struggling. And we're reminded the weight of what he is about to carry is insurmountable. One commentator said it this way. He said, can you imagine? Can you imagine being judged for every sin of every person who ever lived? Can, can you imagine carrying the weight of everyone's sin? That, that's the cup of God's wrath. The, the father rejects his son. And though, though the son of God, though Jesus prays three times to have this cup removed, each time, God the Father returns a silent no from heaven to his Son. The Father says no to Jesus in order for him to be able to say yes to you and me. Jesus is carrying the weight of the sin of the world. Can you imagine that? I mean, think about that. We all know, we've all experienced what it's like to carry the weight of sin, right? Right? Like, like we've all had those times in our life where we have that sin that nobody knows about except you and God, and it's that sin that keeps creeping back up. It's what Paul talks about where, you know, he says, I want to do one thing, my flesh wants to do another, the Spirit tells me to do this, the flesh tells me to do this. We've all wrestled with that. We've all carried that burden where sin has owned us and the weight of that and the guilt of that. Now take that times the entire world. Take that burden times every person in the entire world, and then take that times every person in the entire world for all of history. And that's what God is pouring out on Jesus as he goes to the cross. That's why John, in 1 John 2, says Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. He's the payment. He's the substitute. Not just for your sin, not just for my sin, but for the sins of of the whole world. And it doesn't just end there. As we go on, <clears throat> excuse me, in the passage in verse 47, while Jesus was still speaking to these three disciples, while he was still telling them that they better wake up and they better start praying, there comes a crowd, or some translations say a regiment of men, and a man called Judas, who was one of the twelve. Judas was leading them, and he drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, he said, Judas, are you going to betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And those who were around him saw what would follow, and they said to Jesus, they said, Lord, should we strike them with the sword? And then one of them, and we all know who it is, right? Like the other gospel writers tell us, but if I said you get three guesses to figure out what disciple does this, you'd only need one, right? 
It's Peter. <laughs> Peter strikes the servant of the high priest, the guy named Malchus, and he cuts off his right ear. And Jesus says, no more of this. And he touches the ear and he heals the man. And Jesus says to the chief priests and the officers and all these people who were there who had come out against him, he said, have you come at me like a robber? Have you come with swords and clubs to capture me? When I was with you, I was with you every day in the temple and you didn't lay a hand on me. But that's okay because this is your hour. And this is the power of darkness. And in this moment, as Jesus begins this red mile journey, it starts by being betrayed by a friend. Proverbs 27 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. And in this moment, Jesus sees a friend who has switched sides. And he's betrayed by one of his own. And Jesus has already been abandoned, so to speak, by his three closest friends. Three different times Jesus has gone back to his best friends, the guys that are leading this whole thing, and he finds them sleeping. And then if you continue on in the story further on, as we're going to look at next week, all the people scatter anyway. So in this moment, as Jesus begins the, the hardest journey of his life, as he begins this red mile walk towards the cross, Jesus is betrayed by one of his own, and he's abandoned by everyone else. The reality of this moment this morning is that everyone around Jesus rejects Jesus. Those who would be called enemy and those who would have been called friend. And Jesus accepts complete rejection so that sinners the people who rejected him people like you and me when we put our faith in jesus can receive complete acceptance and this scene is such such a good visual contrast between the darkness of evil and the light of jesus this scene where Jesus is betrayed by a friend and abandoned by everyone else reminds you and me this morning of the depth of evil that's leading this charge against the Son of God. This, this scene reminds us that there is an evil, there is a darkness in this world that is greater than we ever take notice of. And in this scene, it's such a great picture because you have Jesus and these 11 other guys who follow him, and maybe a few others, and Judas shows up to capture Jesus with this group of men. And it probably the word they use to describe it most closely relates to militia, which would have meant Judas showed up with probably 600 armed men. 600 armed men to capture Jesus. And when one of Jesus' guys pulls out a sword and tries to fight them, Jesus actually rebukes him. And Jesus bends over and picks up the man's ear in a scene that I really want to see when I get to heaven. And he puts it back on. I'm like, only Jesus, right? In the midst of a battle with 600 men, he's like, oh, you dropped this. <laughs> it's like Mr. Potato Head, right? Like, oh, the nose goes here, right? But in the midst of that comedic thought, <laughs> Please don't miss the depth of evil that's coming after the abundance of goodness that is found in Jesus. Please don't miss that in the middle of a violent overthrow 
that the king of kings says, put down the sword and pick up the ear. Please don't miss this morning that when the darkness of the world came with violent intentions after the Son of Man, that the Son of Man told his people, no, 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 that's not how we fight. And the Son of Man showed an act of kindness to the very one who came to kill. Because Jesus believes, and Scripture tells us, that his kindness is what will lead people to repentance. Think about what Jesus went through in this moment. Think about who Jesus really is in this moment. Uh, Dan Spader, in his book, Four Chair Discipleship, describes this way. He says, imagine for a moment a king who ruled a vast kingdom. And this king had everything that a king should have. This king had everything that he ever desired to be brought to him. This king had servants who waited on him. This king had a rich wardrobe. This king had vast banquets at every meal, everything he ever desired. And one day, as he looked out over his kingdom, this king observed that there were beggars in the street who could not help themselves. And this king felt pity on his people, and he wanted to help them, but how? And he realized that the only way that he could really help these broken people, the only way he could help these beggars and homeless in the street was to become like them. So while he still remained king, while he still retained every right of authority, while he still kept all the riches of his kingdom, he took off his royal garments, anything that would make you know that he was king, and he put on the clothes of a beggar. He left the comforts of his castle and he became a vagabond in the streets. The king lived exactly as beggars lived. He survived on the kindness of strangers. People passed by him as he slept in the streets. They spat at him. They mocked him. The king suffered greatly along his people. But don't forget that as a king, at any moment he could have called for his army at any time to retaliate against the people who treated him so unjustly. He could have ended it just like that. But he chose not to, because if he did, then he couldn't fully experience the life of a beggar. These people, his people, they, they couldn't call for a royal army to protect them. They didn't have that capability. Now, don't miss this, the king never stopped being king. He never relinquished his authority. He never gave up his kingdom. Nevertheless, to fully experience the beggar's life, he refused to exercise his rights as a king. And as Jesus begins this story, as the king of kings begins the walk of a red mile to the cross, he chooses to surrender his will. Jesus gives up his rights. And he surrenders his will to God's. He says, not my will, but your will be done. And we're reminded this morning of the depth of love that Jesus has for you and me. Jesus knew that this was the reason he had come into the world. For this hour and this moment and this purpose. And don't miss this, that Jesus' suffering does not begin at the cross at the place that is called Golgotha, where the cross is at. Jesus' suffering does not begin there. 
His suffering begins in Gethsemane. It begins today in this moment. Hebrews 5 says that in the days of Jesus' flesh, when he walked on earth, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. He's talking about Gethsemane. He offered them to God who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. And although Jesus was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And he became perfect. He became the source of eternal salvation to all who follow and obey. And I think it's really important to notice this morning that Jesus doesn't enter this journey blindly. Jesus fully understands the cost. Jesus didn't just say, you know what, God, I don't want to know. He didn't, you can't take away the garden. You can't take away this moment. Jesus didn't just say, all right, come arrest me and let me go, close my eyes, and blah, 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 I don't hear what you're saying. He doesn't just do that. Jesus doesn't just say, I don't want to know. He doesn't blindly step out in a moment of emotion and then go, "Uh uh-oh, what I get into? Jesus fully counts the cost of what is about to happen. He fully understands that he's not just going to die. He's going to take on the cup of God's wrath, the sin of the world. He fully knows the cost. And he goes anyway. And some people look at this story in Gethsemane and say, boy, Jesus is wavering. I don't know that the Son of God should waver. I think this shows that he's a little wishy-washy. For me, I think this is the story, I think it's the best story of God's love. That Jesus sits with God And Jesus wrestles with God. And Jesus says, you know, God, if there's another way, I'd prefer that. In fact, he does that three times. And when God says no three times, Jesus goes, okay, I'll go anyway. I'll go anyway because that's how much he loves you and me. And it's just like Jesus in this moment to act in grace when everyone else is acting in violence and malice. But, but Jesus understood that when Peter cut off that guy's ear, he's fighting the wrong enemy. Jesus understood that the enemy was much bigger than human means. Jesus knew what Paul would say later in Ephesians 6, that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We, we wrestle against rulers and authorities and cosmic powers, a darkness that is not of this world. And so Jesus knew that, and he went anyway. One of my favorite stories, I think I've probably told this here probably more than once, <laughs> but David Platt, uh, he tells a story of being over at a Buddhist temple in Indonesia and he says he's outside and he's engaged in conversation with a Buddhist leader and a Muslim leader. And he said these, these two leaders are discussing how all religions, according to them, are, are pretty much the same. They're fundamentally the same and only superficially different. And, and Platt says he listens for a while and one of them says, you know, we may have different views about small issues, but when it comes down to the essential things, we're all pretty much the same. And he said he listened for a while and finally one of them looked at him and said, well, you're a Christian, what do you think? And Platt looked at him and he said, well, it sounds to me that, that you both picture God or whatever you call God at the top of a mountain. And it seems as if you believe that maybe I take this way up the mountain and you take this way up the mountain and 
this guy takes this way up the mountain, but we, but we all get up there eventually, and we, we all end up at the same place. And he said they both smiled, and they said, yeah, exactly, that's, that's what we're talking about. You get it. And then Platt said he leaned in, and he said, I, I, I simply asked him this question. He said, now let me ask you, what would you guys think if I told you that the God at the top of the mountain actually came down to where you are? He said, what would you think if, if I told you that God actually doesn't wait for people to get to the mountain? He actually doesn't wait for people to find their own way up. What if I told you instead he comes down to save us and take us there himself? And he said they both paused and they, they thought for a moment. And he said at almost the exact same time, they sighed. And they looked at Platt and they said, oh, that would be great. That would be so good. And Platt said, I leaned in and said, let me introduce you to Jesus, the king who left the mountain to come to you. See, this, this walk that Jesus is about to take, this red mile, will change the course of history. And Journey, I want to tell you this morning as we begin this series, that when you walk this with Jesus, when you walk alongside Jesus to the cross, it will change your life. It will change your life. If we walk with him in these moments, it will change your life. And so I want to illustrate that every week. And so every week during the series, I'm going to invite someone to come and just share how Jesus has changed their life and what it means to them that Jesus would walk this mile for them. And so this morning, I'm going to invite Katie Morris to come on up and share with you her story of Jesus. testimony for this week. It was hard for me to imagine following up this sort of sermon with my story. What Jesus endured in the garden and what he was about to endure on the cross is something that I will never have to experience. But then I got to thinking and soon realized that if Jesus had never collided with my story and the reality of what my life would have become, his experience on the cross hits a little closer to home, which is why I share. I look at the life of Jesus and I see two things that I am really grateful for. First, I see a life that displays, displays a full commitment to a denial of self all the way to the cross. So then I look back at my life. And growing up, I was full of pride and self-righteousness with my identity wrapped around school and volleyball. My parents and I would go to church when I was really young. But volleyball soon took over my life with tournaments on Sundays and practices happening one or two times a week. So youth group wasn't much of a thing, and I was lucky to get to Sunday school maybe once or twice a month. As I grew older, I continued to work hard in everything I was involved in. I continued to get all A's in school. I really saw myself get rewarded for all this hard work that I was putting into my life, graduating at the top of my class, getting recruited to play volleyball for quality programs. During all this, I was reintroduced to Jesus by a previous boyfriend, and I knew that if this relationship was going to work, this too would be something that I would have to work hard at. I started listening to Christian music. I started watching what words were coming out of my mouth, making sure I was dressed and acting appropriately, um, basically checking all the boxes of what I thought it meant to be a Christian without any heart transformation. All of this was based on my own efforts, my own doing, how hard I worked. 
If I slipped into sin, I just needed to try harder and be better. This pride in this lifestyle followed me into college. I ended up attending and playing volleyball here at Wayne State. Um, it wasn't until my sophomore year that I met some women who asked me to join my very first Bible study. I also got connected with the college ministry happening here at Journey and even started attending church on Sundays. Soon enough, I was introduced to a Jesus that I had never known before. A Jesus who told me to stop striving, stop trying so hard, stop the act of perfection, to lay down my pride and my identity, and to step into a new identity with him as a Lord and Savior of my life. And I did just that. Not because of anything I had done, and not because of anything I could ever do. For the first time in my life, I accepted a gift that I couldn't achieve by myself. No effort on my behalf could save myself from my sins or even death. I often find this hard to believe, even today. The fact that I can just rest in his grace and forgiveness that he extends to me as his child. And even though I know and believe this as truth, the act of self-denial and surrendering my plans to his is a choice that I have to continue to make daily. Throughout college, I continued to grow my relationship with Jesus, um, getting to know him and what it actually meant to follow him. I started pouring out and sharing this with the people around me, um, the majority of which being my teammates and some other female athletes. And it wasn't really until my senior year of college that I decided to publicly declare my faith in Christ through the waters of baptism, identifying in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Being committed to my relationship with Jesus hasn't always been easy. It's easy to want the benefits of Christ, but not always the sacrifice that comes with it. When I was heading into my last year of college, I had a full year of student teaching ahead of me. Teaching was something I was passionate about, and I couldn't wait to get married, get my first teaching job, start a life for myself. Um, but I learned quickly that life doesn't always go how you plan it or how you have it laid out for yourself. Um, that year, my former head coach, Kneifel, had reached out to me asking me to come back to Wayne to coach and be part of the program once more. Around the same time, Justin asked me to come back to Wayne to do campus ministry. Part of me still thinks they kind of co-conspiracied that, but I don't actually know that. Um, <laughs> um, my immediate thought was no, um, but then when each of them continued to ask, I had the feeling that this was God nudging me out of my comfort zone and asking me to surrender my plan for my life for his. Four years later, Spencer and I are still in Wayne, and looking back, I see the life that the Lord had laid out for me was one in which I got to meet people I would have never gotten to meet and do things I wouldn't have other, otherwise gotten to do or be a part of. Now, I understand our move to northeast Nebraska doesn't quite compare um, to the submission Jesus displayed in knowing his life would be a ransom for all humanity, but Jesus demonstrates in this willful submission that we, too, are called to die to ourselves and our plans and be committed to that of the will of the Father. The second thing that I see and I'm thankful for in the life and death of Jesus is one of hope. The fact that Jesus gives us all the way to eternity with him is something I never knew how much I cherished until most recently. Last January, my dad was diagnosed with liver cancer. And for the first time in my life, I was facing an adversity and suffering unlike I had ever experienced. Throughout all of his treatments and tests, I held on to a hope that the Lord would heal my dad. And for three months, I clung to that hope as hard as I could until I lost my dad in his battle with cancer. Hope is a funny thing to me. I look back and I constantly wonder, 
Would it have just been better to accept reality and live hopeless? Would it have been better to come to terms with this disease, knowing that eventually it would take my dad from me? Or was it better to live with so much hope, only to have it snatched away, with nothing to show for it but a lifetime of memories? And to be honest, I don't know the answer. But I do know that there's a difference between an earthly hope and an eternal hope. And I see that in the work of Jesus on the cross. Two years before all of this, I watched my dad say yes to Jesus on a Sunday morning in a Southern California church service. After years of trying to figure out where my dad was at spiritually, I watched the God of the universe meet him right where he was at. And so I now hold on to this eternal hope, a hope that will never be snatched away, a hope that is everlasting, a hope and a promise by a faithful and good God that declares my dad and I will be reunited someday at the gates of heaven. I never wanted this to be part of my story. I have experienced an entire other world I had never known before filled with pain, anger, and lots of sadness. But the reality is, is that this is my story. But there is one who went before me, one who can identify with us in our joys and our sufferings, one whose story I get to be a part of, all because he went to a cross, called me his own, and gave hope a name. Hebrews chapter 12 says, Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight, every sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, the author of life, for the joy, the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So, Journey, what do we do this morning as we begin this walk with Jesus? What's our response to this great love in the face of great darkness? Warren Wearsby is a, a Bible commentator that I really enjoy, and I, I like what he says. He says, each of us must decide how we'll go through this life with Jesus. Each of us have to decide how we'll go through life. Will we pretend like Judas did? Will we fight like Peter? Or will we yield to God's perfect will like Jesus? Will it be a kiss? Will it be the sword or will it be the cup? Well, here's the beautiful thing this morning, journey. Because Jesus takes the cup of God's wrath on this journey, because at the end of the red mile, the wrath of God is poured out on the Son of Man, Jesus gives you and me a different cup to drink. We don't get the cup of wrath anymore. We get the cup of grace and forgiveness and restoration. That's the cup we invite you to take this morning. As we get ready to sing, we invite you to walk with, walk with Jesus to the cross to see in all of its stark reality the Savior who took the wrath of God, the weight of the sin of the world, and to know that that's your sin and my sin. That's the cup that you and I deserve to have, but we invite you to go with, journey, to go with Jesus to the cross 
and to see the cup of grace that comes from the Son of God who suffered for you. If you've never taken that cup, we invite you this morning. I would love to talk to you about what that means. One of our elders would love to visit with you about what it means to accept the cup of forgiveness from the Savior. If you're a follower of Jesus this morning, I invite you as you sing to drink in the grace that comes from a Jesus who would walk the red mile for you. Let's stand with